1 Corinthians chapter 12, we've just been working our way through a little study of the gifts. And, uh, you know, the, the Bible says we've been doing are not very in-depth. We're just kind of touching on the things a, a little bit, just the real sort of basics of things. And, and uh, we're hoping that our Thursday nights are more of a practicum than they are a lecture. You know what I mean? More of a lab, so to speak. I mean, we're wanting to actually uh, do some hands-on, you know, enjoying the Holy Spirit moving in our midst. And that's what he's been doing as people have been testifying. And uh, so let's review the gifts that we've gone over so far. Starting in verse 7. But to each one is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. Just need to remember that point before, before we move on. That the gifts are for the common good. Amen? They're not so that any individual could be exalted. They're not so that our lives alone could be blessed. But we are corporately bound to one another by the blood of Jesus Christ. And that's the design of God. We are bound one to another. Blood brothers and sisters, so to speak. And so as the New Testament says, when one rejoices, we rejoice with them. When one weeps, we weep with them. And we've been doing that here. You know, and last week there was some weeping we did together. And, and this week some rejoicing so far. And so, you know, when she's healed of her lower back thing and she's healed of, our, of her hip and people are getting saved and the husband's hearts are getting softened, that's for the common good. All your faith is built by that. Amen. Amen. You just keep that in mind. Verse eight, for to one is given the word of wisdom through the spirit to another, the word of knowledge, according to the same spirit. We spoke about those our first evening together to another faith by the same spirit. Pastor G spoke on that and to another gifts of healings by one spirit. We spoke of that last week and then tonight and to another, the affecting of miracles, the affecting of miracles. So Tonight we talk about uh, miracles and the New Testament moving of the Holy Spirit and, and enabling people to perform miracles. The word affecting there that the New American Standard uses kind of a word to uh, a strange word to our ears. We wouldn't use it that often, the affecting of miracles. Uh, but that word could also be translated the working so the working of miracles or the operation of miracles or the activity of miracles uh, affecting is kind of a, a weird word. So um, the proper definition of the word in the Greek is activity as expression of capability. And so the working of miracles. Now that word translated miracles there is the word dunamis in Greek, which you guys are, are familiar with. It carries several meanings, one basic meaning being power. In this context here, the meaning being a deed of power. So the idea is this, the operations of God's capable power. That's my definition in context. The operations or the workings of God's capable power. And in the Greek, both those words, workings or affecting and uh, power are in the plural. Now, that's important because remember, last week I told you that regardless of what it says in your English Bible, the Greek for gift of healing is actually gifts of healings. And what we're able to deduce from that, I believe, exegetically speaking, is that every healing is a sovereign individual work of God. That is to say, it probably wouldn't be technically correct to say someone has the gift of healing. 
It'd be more proper to say the gift of healing functions through them or the Lord frequently uses them for that because of the plurality. And so we wouldn't necessarily call somebody a healer. We call Jesus Christ the healer. Amen. And because it's gifts of healings, each individual one is a work of God. And we see the same thing here. It's the workings of powers. Okay? The, the operations of God's capable powers. And so we wouldn't necessarily say, I don't believe, and people differ on this, but I don't think we'd say someone has the gift of working miracles. It might be that frequently God works miracles through them or on occasion or just one time or whatever, but each one is an individual impartation of the Holy Spirit. And the gifts are different that way. If someone has the gift of teaching, they generally have the gift of teaching, you know what I mean? And and they possess that gift and the gift of service, gift of administration, so on and so forth. But this seems to be individually given by the Holy Spirit according to the sovereignty of God. And what we also need to recognize is that word dunamis or power or capability, it's referring to God's power, God's capability. It's not that somebody then has inherent power to perform miracles. It's always the power of God, the capability of God distributed through the person. We know that, don't we? But we need to remember that. That's true with all the gifts. That's true with all the gifts. And we always need to remember that the power is in the person of Jesus Christ. The power is in the person of Jesus Christ. So he gets the glory. He gets the glory, right? If somebody has a gift and it's functioning powerfully, we've got to be able to appreciate that and appreciate their obedience and diligence, but it's the Lord. It's the Lord Jesus Christ who gets the glory. Now, operations of powers or miracles. Most of the ones that we see in the New Testament are are having to do with healings. Most of the miracles that we see in the New Testament were healings. But we see here that there's a difference between gifts of healings and workings of power. So there must be some other miracles that happen in the New Testament. And of course there are. Now generally when speaking about the gifts, we don't use, at least I don't use, other Bible expositors do use, but I don't use Jesus as an example. Because I don't really think it, you know, I don't think if Jesus had the gift of this and that, the other, he's God, you know what I mean? He just did what he wanted to do when he wanted to do it, you know what I mean? So I don't choose him as an example, though we see Jesus doing all sorts of miracles, obviously, in the Gospels. But I would look toward members of the church for the New Testament gifts and see then how miracles would function through them. And there's a whole lot of them in the book of Acts. For example, there's deliverances from prison, Remember? The disciples, a multitude of them were delivered from prison at one time. That was miraculous. Peter on another occasion was delivered from prison. That was a working of God's capable power. Amen. Um, We see it also in works of judgment on the enemies of God. For example, uh, Elimus the sorcerer in Acts chapter 13. uh, Paul said to him in the name of Jesus, basically, I strike you blind. And he went blind for a time. That was a miraculous power. There it's in the context of working against the enemies of the gospel. We see miraculous things happening with discipline within the church. Remember Ananias and Sapphira. That was kind of a gnarly gig. What about Philip 
in his little mini rapture experience, being snatched away from Gaza to uh, Azotus, uh, further north. Remember, he, he was walking in Gaza, and all of a sudden the Lord snatched him away, and he was placed in another location where he shared the gospel with an individual, that eunuch who was leaving Jerusalem. So that was a miraculous thing. That was a miraculous work of God, a working of God's power. Also, in the New Testament church, we see uh, people being raised from the dead. And that's according to the power of God. A a woman named Dorcas was raised from the dead in Acts chapter 9. Not a popular name anymore. And that was by Peter. And it's kind of neat the way Peter did it. If later on you want to read Acts chapter 9, he just did what he had seen the Lord do. Do you remember there was the one instance where the Lord was going to raise the little girl and what he did was he just took Peter and James and John into the room where the little girl had died and told the other disciples to stay outside, sent them away. And then said, little girl, I say to you, arise. Well, it's interesting. In Acts chapter 9, Peter is called upon to raise this, this girl, Dorcas, from the dead. I mean, they say, come, raise her from the dead, please. And can you imagine being in Peter's shoes? Peter had never done that before, but he had seen it done. So when you read Acts chapter 9, you compare it with the Gospels, he did the exact same thing. He went into the room and he let a couple people say, and he said to everyone else, get out. And he sent them out just like Jesus did. And then he said the exact same words and she was healed from the dead. I I just love the simplicity of that. I don't know what to do. I only know what I've seen Jesus do. And he did that and it worked. I think it's kind of cool. And then Paul raised Eutychus from the dead in Acts chapter 20. So two people in the book of Acts that were raised from the dead. Obviously that is a working of God's capable power. We see in Acts chapter 28, miraculous delivery from injury. Remember, Paul was bitten by the snake. There was a viper. He was shipwrecked on the island. He made a fire. A viper came out of the wood and bit him on the hand, and he shook it off, and he was unharmed. And everybody was amazed at that. We also see, and this is very interesting, but in Acts chapter 5, verse 15, we're told that when Peter was walking through the town, people were bringing the sick out and laying them in the street. And when Peter's shadow would pass over them, they were healed. That's a trippy gig. But that's obviously, it's not Peter, you know what I mean? That's not Peter's power, Peter's super shadow or anything. That's working of the Lord. But that's biblical. And then also in Acts 19, Paul had this miraculous handkerchief. It says in Acts 19, verses 11 and 12, and God was performing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul so that the handkerchiefs or aprons were even carried from his body to the sick and the diseases left them and the evil spirits went out. Wow. So we see that it was normative in the early church that God did miraculous things and he did them through people because God chooses to work through people not independent of them or often chooses to work through people. And we see that, excuse me, what these miraculous things did, they, they helped the church, they evangelized the lost and they glorified Jesus. That's what the miracles did. They helped the church when the church was in need. Peter's in prison. It's like a pillar of the church. What do we do? There is evangelism that happened after some of those uh, miracles happened. Those who previously had not believed, believed afterwards. And they glorified Jesus Christ. The people began to give glory to Jesus Christ because of his power working through people. And so I, I would say that we should expect to see miracles today in the church. I would say we don't see as many as I would like to see. 
But we should expect to see some miraculous things happen. We already talked about some tonight, right? We talked about some tonight, some miraculous things that have happened in our midst. And, and those things should help the church when the church is in need. Those things should aid in evangelism and convincing some of the people that previously rejected Jesus Christ. And they should glorify Jesus Christ. Now, we see that in the New Testament, Peter and Paul, obviously this gift functioned through them frequently. And here's one of the statements about Paul in Acts 14.3. Therefore, they spent a long time there speaking boldly. This is Paul and his partners in ministry with reliance upon the Lord who was bearing witness to the word of his grace, granting that signs and wonders be done by their hands. Okay, so I want you to notice a couple things about this. They spent a long time speaking boldly. That's a good point. They were persistent in their witness for Jesus Christ. They were persistent and they were bold. Oftentimes the church is neither of these things. We are called to be bold and it's very important that we're bold in this day and age. And and sometimes we're bold, but not persistent. I think we need to remember to be persistent. I was doing some studies at North Park Theological Study one time. I was there for a seminar, a little summer thing. And it was a seminar put on by the the Billy Graham um, evangelical thingamajigger. Anyway, One of the facts that they said that they claimed to have, I don't know how they got this, but here's a fact that they had, and this was studied by North Park Theological Seminary, but they said this. The average American has to hear the gospel presented clearly 30 times before they respond. Now, I don't know how you come up with that fact or figure. I'm not even sure if it's true, but they claimed, and this is a reputable source, but but they claimed that the average American has to hear the gospel presented 30 times clearly before they respond. Let's say that that's exaggerative and that's not true and their numbers are skewed. Let's cut it in half even. Let's cut it in half. The average American has to hear the gospel presented clearly 15 times. Let's cut it in half again. The average American has to hear the gospel presented clearly seven times. Still, that would require on the part of the church persistence, I would say. But what we often do is we work up the guts and the nerve to just one time kind of say something and if they reject it, we're like... fine, you're going to hell and it's all on you. (laughs) I did my part. I told you, I tried to tell you, but that's not biblical at all. We need to be persistent in our witness for Jesus Christ. Especially, let me tell you this, and this is from personal experience. Those who seem to be the most opposed to the gospel are often those that are closest to getting saved. The person that you really need to worry about and really need to press into is the apathetic person. But the one who just seems to be offended by the gospel and just, uh, and they just rail against it and there's almost this violent reaction. That's because the Holy Spirit's just going, uh, 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 in their little corazón, you know what I mean. And so they're having this reaction. And so be persistent with those people and be especially persistent with those who are apathetic. But, Therefore, they spent a long time there speaking boldly. And notice, with reliance upon the Lord. That's, there's great comfort in that. We don't save anybody. It's the Lord Jesus Christ who saves. And we can't convince anybody. Jesus said that the Holy Spirit would come to convict or convince the world concerning sin, righteousness, and judgment. Our calling is to put forth the message. 
to communicate the message. It's up to the Holy Spirit to convince. Now, we may employ some apologetics to remove some stumbling blocks. That is some reasoned arguments as to the historicity and validity of the Christian faith to remove some basic stumbling blocks from people. But ultimately, it is only the Holy Spirit that can convince the heart and the mind of an individual that Jesus Christ is the risen Lord. So they were bold and they were persistent, but they relied upon the Lord. That's the balance. The weight of it depends upon the Lord. And then look what the Lord was doing. It says the Lord was bearing witness to the word of his grace, okay, lending validity to, by granting that signs and wonders be done by their hands. So here we see that that signs and wonders in the New Testament context was used by the sovereignty of the Lord for evangelistic purposes. They came with a message, and there were a lot of messages in that time, as there are today. A lot of competing ideologies, a lot of competing religions, a lot of competing so-called gods. They came with a message, a message that wasn't even unique. It's not a message that nobody had ever heard. Satan is a great counterfeiter. There were gods in the Greek pantheon who claimed to have sons that had risen from the dead. It's not as though the Greek audience of Paul had never heard of such a thing before. Okay, but the Lord was lending witness to the word by granting signs and wonders. And therefore, many believe. Now, I want to say something about signs and wonders. In the New Testament, the two words are always placed together. Signs and wonders. Wonders being defined simply as events that cause wonderment. Events that make you go, wow. Okay, and then signs being defined as events that signify something. You know that a sign is never the goal. If you're driving into Carpinteria and you see a sign and it says Carpinteria, you know, 3.5 miles, you don't stop at the sign and go, we're here. You know that a sign always points to something beyond itself. So then you continue until you get to the goal, right? Well, the goal is Jesus Christ. But notice that in the New Testament, these two words, uh, uh, wonders, events that cause wonderment, and signs, events that signify something, are always coupled together. They're never used apart from one another. The reason is, God does not manifest his power just to make people say, wow. He's always rather signifying, teaching, or testifying to some truth. There's a purpose in those events that cause wonderment. They are signs and wonders, not merely wonders. Signs and wonders, amazing events that point to something beyond themselves. Very important theological point. Because that theological point would preclude for us ever becoming obsessed then with signs and wonders. Because they're not the goal. They're not the focus. You don't get to the sign and stop and say, this is awesome. You've got to go beyond the sign to that which it points. Now, signs and wonders in the New Testament generally pointed to two things. Number one, that the kingdom of God had come upon them. That the kingdom of God had come upon them. Sickness was caused by the fall of man. Sickness was caused because we live in a, a fallen world and it could also be caused directly by demonic powers. And so Jesus came healing. People were, 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 were demonized and so Jesus came casting out demons. 
And he said this, if I cast out demons by the finger of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. And so the signs and wonders worked by Jesus and his followers were a signal that the kingdom of God had come upon them. Now the consummation of the kingdom was not yet. The kingdom is and the kingdom is to come. The kingdom has come. It is in our midst, as the Lord said, but the consummation or the ultimate fulfillment is not yet. That happens when the Lord comes. Amen? So signs and wonders taught that the kingdom of God had come upon us and they were meant to identify Jesus Christ. And as we saw, to lend validity to the message because the message was not one that had never been heard. Satan is a great counterfeiter. It was absolutely unique in that it was a person of Jesus Christ and he really did die from the dead and he really did fulfill over 320 Old Testament prophecies. But if you just came with a very basic message, someone could say, well, what was unique about that? Signs and wonders. What's unique about Jesus Christ? Well, he rose from the dead, man. Conquered sin and death in the grave. Hebrews 2.4 says... Uh, of, of the early church <clears throat> leaders, God also bearing witness with them, both by signs and wonders and by various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit according to his own will. According to his own will. Gifts of the Holy Spirit according to his own will. So it's not as though any of these individuals could preach the message and say, now I'm going to work a miracle so that you'll believe. They could ask the Lord to do that and the Lord would do it according to his own will. Now, having said that, that's a really good point. Signs and wonders, miracles, and the gift of effecting of miracles was given in the early church to lend validity to the message. On the heels of that, many people say this then today. Many people in the church say this. Well, because of that fact, God doesn't work miracles anymore today. And the gift of miracles and the other sign miracles, prophecy, tongues, healing, faith, so on and so forth, aren't functioning today because they're no longer necessary because we have the canon of Scripture. They didn't have the canon of Scripture. All of Scripture wasn't written yet. It wasn't decided which books were which. It wasn't put together. All the churches didn't have it. And so they needed signs and wonders, but now we have the Word, and so the miraculous is no longer needed, they would say. And so they claim, a lot of people in the church, well-meaning Christians that we love, maybe, maybe some here, probably some here, would say, no, those miraculous gifts ceased when the apostles died out and at the canonization of Scripture. But I, I would counter by saying that there's nothing in the Bible from Genesis to Revelation that would lead us to believe that God only did miraculous things for a time and then intended to stop. As I read scripture, there's nothing that would definitively say that. We see from Genesis to Revelation, rather, that our God is a miracle-working God. There's miracles all through the Old Testament. There's miracles when Jesus came. There was miracles, <clears throat> excuse me, in the book of Acts in the early church. There's miracles referenced in the epistles. And there's miracles in the book of Revelation. So it's nonsensical to me to say, well, then there was this little segment of time in between those things where God just said, I'm not doing any miracles anymore. I'm not doing any miracles through the church. I just don't see anything in Scripture that would signify that further. If God were to cease to do miracles in our day and age, then nobody would be getting saved. That's a major point. Because Jesus said that salvation is a miracle. 
Remember in Matthew 19 when, when the, the rich young ruler came to him? And said, so what do I have to do? And Jesus laid out some things that you have to do. For the rich young ruler, he had to sell all of his possessions and then follow Jesus. Why did Jesus say that? Are we all supposed to sell all of our possessions? No. For that individual, that's what was standing between him and following Jesus. We do need to get rid of whatever is keeping us from following the Lord. But for him, that was it. But he was a righteous young man. He had truly obeyed the law. He says, I've done all those things according to the law from my youth. And Jesus didn't contradict that. Jesus didn't say, no, you haven't. So as far as righteousness from the law goes, he was a righteous young man. And he went away disappointed. And listen, the disciples said this. "Um, Then who can get saved? If that guy couldn't get saved, with his righteousness, and who can get saved? Jesus said, truly I say to you, it is hard for, harder for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I say to you, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. And the disciples were astonished and said, then who can be saved? And looking upon them, Jesus said, with men this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. Jesus in that moment defined salvation as a miracle that is impossible for men. Then it is a working of the capable power of God that men and women are saved. So if God has ceased to do the miraculous in the church age, then we would expect that nobody would be getting added to the church. Because Jesus said it is impossible with men. But with God all things are possible. And that's the definition of a miracle. At least, at the very least, no rich people will be getting saved. There's a whole lot of rich people in our church that have gotten saved. Praise the Lord. But that's the definition of a miracle. What man cannot do, God does. Now, a second thing that I would say about those who would say, look, we have the word. We don't need signs and wonders to confirm the word anymore is this. What about regions in the world and dialects that don't have the word of God available to them? Do you know that at this moment in history, there are at least 2,286 languages that do not have the Bible translated into them? 2,286 languages in the world. So effectively, they don't have the word of God. They have some missionaries going to them. Right? They have some missionaries going to them, but they don't have the word of God. And those missionaries are going to spend 25 years learning the language. They're going to spend, many of them, we had a missionary testify here not too long ago, a decade just getting to know how to communicate the gospel to those people. And so I I would say that that argument is invalid because of that. And then I would simply say this. Listen, if God is still alive, then God still does miracles. It's just a no-brainer. That's just his nature. That's just who he is. You take miracles away from God, and what do you have? You have an impotent God. What do you have? If God is still alive and God still does a miraculous today, and we've heard the testimony of that tonight. I'll recommend a book, and it's, a, it's an amazing read, and if I had had some forethought, I would have ordered a couple hundred copies and had them here tonight. But The Heavenly Man. Has anybody read The Heavenly Man? Wow, a good percentage of you. You've got to read The Heavenly Man. Unbelievable. I'll tell you, when you first start to read it, you won't believe it. When I first started reading, I said, no way, this is junk. I don't believe this at all. And then I continued to read and I was convinced. And since I've encountered people who have known the guy who's called the heavenly man, uh, Brother Yoon, and some of his associates. 
and can testify to the validity of these stories. It's basically the story of the underground church in China and some individuals who have experienced the same sort of miraculous things that we read of in the book of Acts. Incredible healings, raisings from the dead, releasings from imprisonment. I mean, it's an unbelievable read. And it just increases your faith today. God really still does work that way. The heavenly man, I really suggest that you get it. But you see, here's the deal. In the early church, conditions existed such that it necessitated God confirming the word with signs and wonders. People didn't have the written word. There were other competing stories out there, so on and so forth. And so we already read, that's what God did. Now, what we see is that on missionary frontiers, we have those same conditions in our world today. Competing ideologies, places where the gospel has not yet gone, people that don't have the written word. And what we hear from the mission field is a whole lot of miraculous stories. Can anybody testify? We hear those from the mission field. If you haven't, you need to start reading missionary biographies and autobiographies and accounts from the missionary field. We often hear of acts-like things happening on uh, the frontier of the mission field because conditions there are much like they were in Israel and the surrounding Roman Greco regions during the expansion of the gospel in the early church. And so it necessitates that God does a miraculous. Now let me say this. But let J. Oswald Sanders say it, a man with much more authority, whom I appreciate very much. He says this, In countries long enlightened by the gospel, miracles are not so necessary. This is a realm in which we cannot dictate to the sovereignty of God. Remember the story of um, Lazarus and the rich man? Remember that story? And there was a rich man and Lazarus just wanted to eat the crumbs from his table, and then they both died. And the rich man went to agony, agony and Lazarus was, was in Abraham's bosom. And, 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 or, or I'm sorry, yes. And the rich man said while in agony to the Lord, send somebody to go and tell my brothers because I don't want them to come to this place. Perhaps if they saw somebody come back from the dead, they would believe. And what was the response to him? They have Moses and the prophets. Let them believe. It's a wicked and perverse generation that seeks after signs and wonders, Jesus said. No sign will be given to them except for the sign of Jonah, who was three days in the belly of the whale and then rose again. The resurrection of Jesus Christ. So for those of us, America, who's had the word of God for a long time, I believe that the gospel has penetrated our society, has made inroads to our society, and the Lord expects us to use the gospel. And that necessarily it's not always signs and wonders used for evangelistic purposes. God certainly does do that. But it seems to be, it seems to be my observation, he does more so on missionary frontiers than here. Though we've just heard of several miracles that have happened in the last few weeks right here in our little body. And a lot of people often, they want to see, um, you know, the miraculous happen. And it seems to be that for non-believers, it often convinces them. Go, go to Acts 13. It often convinces them. Excuse me. Go to Acts 13, a story that I referenced a moment ago. And here we see that very thing happening. Acts 13, we'll pick it up in verse 6. 
talking about Paul and Barnabas here in verse 6 of Acts 13. And when they had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, they found a certain magician, a Jewish false prophet whose name was Bar-Jesus or Son of Jesus. Interesting, huh? Who was with the proconsul Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence. Proconsul is a governor of a Roman region. The man summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. But Elimus the magician, for thus his name is translated, was opposing them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. But Paul, who was also known, or Saul, who was also known as Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, fixed his gaze upon him and said, You who are full of all deceit and fraud, you son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, you will not cease to make crooked the straight ways of the Lord. And now behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind and not see the sun for a time. And immediately a mist and a darkness fell upon him, and he went about seeking those who would lead him by the hand. Look at the result now, verse 12. Then the proconsul believed when he saw what had happened, being amazed at the teaching of the Lord. So there we see exactly what we've seen in Scripture. It was a teaching of the Lord, witnessed by the miraculous power of the Lord, that convinced oftentimes the mind of the unbelieving as to the identity of Jesus Christ. So signs and wonders for evangelism. I would put forward this hypothesis. You want to see more of the wonder-working power of God? get radical in evangelism. I think that we'll see it then. That seems to be a primary purpose for signs and wonders in the New Testament is evangelism on the front lines. Get radical about evangelism and I think you'll see more of the miraculous power of God. God. Amen? Now contrast then the effects that signs and wonders have upon Christians or disciples of Jesus Christ. Because oftentimes, let's be honest, there's a segment of the body of Christ that is just longing to see signs and wonders. And they follow after signs and wonders. And there's even a lot within the body that say, well, I would just believe Jesus more if I saw more of the miraculous. But the Word of God says exactly the opposite. Turn to Mark chapter 5. Or Mark chapter 6. You choose, but I'll be in Mark 6. What happens in Mark chapter 6 is the feeding of the 5,000. Miraculous working power of God. Okay, the feeding of the 5,000. After the feeding of the 5,000, Jesus tells his disciples to get in the boat and go to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. He compels them to. The word in Greek is anakazo. It means he forced them to get in the boat. He made them get in the boat. He had just fed the 5,000. It was awesome. Who wouldn't want to linger in that wonderment? Who wouldn't want to just hang around? By the way, he blessed and he broke the bread and he handed it to them and then they distributed. Again, God chooses to work through people not independent of them. God did the miracle, gave it to the disciples. The disciples distributed it to the people and so it is today. But then Jesus, God manifests on earth, said, I command you to get in the boat. He forced him to get in the boat and go to the other side. He did not go with them. You guys know the rest of the story. This huge storm arose. And they began to despair of their life. And later on, Jesus came walking on the water, so on and so forth. Now, do you think that storm was a little dink? There was no dink. That, again, was the miracle working power of God. Get in the boat. You guys need a storm. I want you to follow logically scripture now. They had just seen an incredible miracle. 
And what Jesus in his wisdom knew they needed now for their faith was a trial. Why? Look what it says in verse 52. Verse 51, start. Jesus comes walking on the water, verse 51 of Mark 6, and Jesus got into the boat with them, and the wind stopped, and they were greatly astonished. Verse 52. For they had not gained any insight from the incident of the loaves, but rather their heart was hardened. Their heart was not softened because they saw the miraculous. They were already disciples of Jesus Christ. They didn't believe more because they saw it. Rather, somehow, in the wicked heart of man, their heart was hardened. And so what Jesus knew they needed to soften their heart was a trial. Isn't that interesting? Signs and wonders in the New Testament for the non-believer convinces them. For the believer, what convinces us of the identity and the goodness of God is the difficulty that he allows us to go through in life. Isn't that interesting? God knows exactly what we need. What about Kadesh Barnea? There we have the Exodus generation who had seen all of the plagues in Egypt, who had seen the Red Sea parted, who had ate the manna in the wilderness, who had seen the, the, the pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night, who had seen the rebels swallowed up in the earth when they rebel, rebelled against Moses and it closed up and swallowed. They had seen all these miraculous things. They get to Kadesh Barnea and they don't enter into the promised land. Why? Because of unbelief. Because of unbelief, they did not enter in. They had seen more miracles than any other generation of Israelites before or since. And when the rubber met the road, they weren't able to enter into the promises of God because of unbelief. So where did they go? The wilderness. The disciples did not gain proper insight because of the miraculous. They needed a storm. The Israelites did not gain proper faith because of the miraculous. They needed the wilderness. I'm sorry. That seems to be the economy of God for the people of God. Does not the psalmist say, before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now that I've been afflicted, I keep your word? Didn't the psalmist say, it's good for me that I was afflicted, that I may learn thy ways? He didn't learn because of the miraculous. He learned because of the affliction. And by the way, Romans 10, 17 says, faith comes by hearing and hearing the word of God. It doesn't say that for the believer, more faith necessarily comes from the miraculous. Now, it does seem to help us to a degree. But if we're just seeking after signs and wonders, and if we pin our faith and our hope on those things, we are being contrary to the teaching of Scripture. So for unbelievers, signs and wonders. For Christians, the word of God and discipline. And I would say if you want to see more of God's miraculous working power, engage yourself in evangelism. I, I think that's where it happens most potently. But having said that, within the context of the church, there is certainly a place for seeking the gifts. Doesn't it say in 1 Corinthians twelve thirty one that we are to earnestly desire the greater gifts? And I would say that the effecting of miracles is one of the greater gifts. So there's, this, there's always this balance in Christianity, isn't there? And, and, and Scripture plows that balance line for us perfectly. It's only 
us that get weird on one side or the other, all caught up in signs and wonders or totally rejecting the miraculous, you know what I mean? But scripture plows this line right down the center, this balanced perspective. Earnestly desire the greatest gifts and yet realize it's a wicked and perverse generation that craves for a sign. So how do we keep ourselves straight? We just remember two things. I'm finished. Two things. Love. Perhaps the greatest miracle is that the Spirit of God enables us to love one another. And that is a more excellent way. Earnestly desire the, great, the greatest gifts, and yet I show you a more excellent way. We could have all sorts of miraculous things happen, but if we don't love one another, it's meaningless, 1 Corinthians 13 says. So we remember that, and the second thing we remember is it's all about Jesus. It's not about signs and wonders. It's not about being healed, though that's great. It's not about prophecy. It's not about speaking in tongues. It's about Jesus. If the spirit of Jesus wants to do some of those things, cool. But the fertile ground in which the gifts blossom is love for one another and a passion for Jesus Christ. We get our eyes focused on him. I love what Jim Cimbala said, a hero of mine in the faith. Jim Cimbala of the Brooklyn Tabernacle. You must read his book, Fresh Wind, Fresh Fire. I command you in the name of Jesus. <laughs> I love what Jim Cimbala says in that book. He says this, a potent truth. It's ordered my life. God will manifest himself in direct proportion to our passion for him. God will manifest himself in our midst, in our individual lives, in our church, in miracle, wonder-working power, in direct proportion to our passion for him. It's all about him. We don't want to seek the gifts. We want to seek the giver. We're not to just seek the hand of God. We're to seek the face of God. And when we keep our heart and our hope pinned on him, I think the sky's the limit. And he can do everything. I'm a big godder. I'm a big godder. I believe that he could do anything. We're weird, and as we move into prayer now, we're weird because we, 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 we limit God according to our limitations, or, or we, we often project our limitations upon God. You know what I mean? Someone comes to me and they say, Pastor Brett, I have a headache. Will you pray for me? I'm like, totally. I have faith for that. I'll pray for your headache. Someone comes to me. And says, Pastor Brett, I have leukemia. Will you pray for me? Leukemia, okay, where's Pastor G? Where's Dominic? Where's Sean? Where's Matt? Where's Ryan? Where's, you know what I mean? I don't know that I have faith. Why? A headache and leukemia to God is like, what? I mean, what? It's the same thing to God. But see, what we often do is we cast our limitations upon him. Leukemia seems so much bigger to us than a headache. Headache, no problem, I'll pray for that. Your husband to get saved, I'll pray for that. But our missionary in Thailand has asked us to pray for a million people to get saved. It's harder for me to pray. That's a display of my lack of faith. I project my own limitations upon God, and we need to stop that. We need to realize he's God and he can do anything, amen? So let's focus our hearts on Jesus with a little bit of worship and then the prayer team will go over there and let's see what it is the Lord wants to do tonight. Lord, we just thank you that you are a miracle-working God.
And we thank you that all of it points toward the person of Jesus Christ. And we just ask that now, Lord, you'd magnify Jesus in our hearts and minds. That Jesus, you'd be exalted above everything, Lord, above all else. That we, Lord, have Holy Spirit come and help us. That you'd make us passionate for the person of Jesus Christ. We are passionate, but help our lack of passion. We believe, but help our lack of belief. We love, but help our lack of love. Jesus, we want you ruling and reigning and enthroned. You're the head of the church. And then in that context, Lord, we want you to do whatever it is you want to do. We thank you that on our Thursday nights, we've had prophetic words, really sweet ones, Lord. We thank you that people have been healed here on Thursday nights, that hard hearts have been softened. You've been doing the miraculous in our midst. But we just want to continue to commit it to your sovereignty. And we say together that thing that we pray together so much as a church. Lord, we want everything you have for us. Nothing more, but nothing less. And we believe you're able to do everything. And we ask that you forgive us for our boxes and our own limitations. We ask that Jesus, you be so exalted now in our hearts and minds that we would just repeat what was said throughout Scripture is anything too difficult for the Lord. So let's worship a little bit and the prayer team will be over there and we'll pray for the sick, we'll pray for whatever it is.